Praise the Lord. It's good to gather together. It's uh, good to have Mark Andre here this morning. If you don't know who Mark Andre is, he's a good-looking fellow right, right in the middle here. He's a member of Grace Baptist Church in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, and, if you, and some of you older members will, will recall uh, Bill Emberly used to be a, a member of this church, and now he's pastoring out in Dartmouth, and Mark Andre comes from his church. So we're, we're thankful to have you here this morning worshiping with us, and we praise the Lord for you. And uh, so thankful again to be handling this text. You know, it's amazing to go through Acts chapter 2. I, I think it's one of the most thrilling chapters, it really is. You know, we read another thrilling chapter that happened to begin in Matthew chapter 27 that deals with the crucifixion, again, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is absolutely amazing because in it we have the foundation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we are part of this morning. You know, and we see that first Christian sermon that happened to begin preached, and that was by Peter. And 3,000 souls came forward to trust in the Lord Jesus. And the reason, again, why we know that they trusted in Jesus is because of the response. They, they had this large crowd of unbelieving Jews that uh, hated Jesus. And they removed themselves from there. And they come over to the smaller group and come forward to be uh, baptized. Otherwise, to be identified with Jesus Christ. And that's what true saving faith does. It separates from error. It separates from that which is apostasy. And we could see that going on. But the other question we have to ask is, what do, does the church do now? Now that we have members, now that, now that there's 3,000, what does it do? And right here we see the church in its purity. We see it in its infancy. And we see its activity in verse number 42. And he names four characteristic activities of any healthy church that it should have. And we've been going over those for the past couple Sundays. And one of them happens to be that they devoted themselves. In other words, they wanted to learn. They cherished the opportunity. They threw themselves in. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine. You know, and just like God, again, had put a new desire in them. And that desire was for, for apostolic doctrine, apostolic truth. They wanted to know the truth about Jesus Christ. They were like newborn babes who desired the pure milk of the word, word that they might grow thereby. And, and they had a desire for it that they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt. Not only had they been wrong about Jesus, but they were ignorant about Jesus. Everything that Peter pre uh, preached was absolute truth. But, but, uh, but there was so much more to learn about Jesus, to learn about this salvation, to learn about this new hope that we have. And as we come Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday into the house of the Lord, we realize there's so much more that we need to learn about this great God from his word. And we have a desire. All true believers have a desire for his word. But not only that, we saw last time that we were together, not only did they devote themselves to the apostolic doctrine, they devoted themselves to fellowship. In other words, God had worked in their hearts so wonderfully that he'd give them a desire for one another, a desire to be with like-minded believers. Even though, again, they might hate these uh, individuals before they came to Christ, there was a bond. There, there was a love that happened to begin there, and they cherished the times that they happened to be together. And one, one of the signs that we are truly born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is that we have a desire to be with other believers. We have a desire to fellowship together. But as we look at that, that's not the only thing that the early church did. You know, and we can see in verse number 42, again, these characteristic activities. And we're going to look at the third one this morning. But look at what it says. And it says, and they devoted themselves. And themselves, again, are the 3,000 that trusted in Christ. This is what they did along with the apostles. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to, to the fellowship 
And then it says this, and to the breaking of bread. And notice it says the right there. In other words, this is not breaking of bread where we're just having a common meal together. You know, today today we're going to have soup and chili. You know, that's not what it's talking about. But it's talking about something specific, some characteristic activity that was repeated over and over and over again. And when he uses that word devoted that happens to be again right there, you have to realize it goes for all the activities. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And they devoted themselves to the prayers. And right here in this passage of Scripture, we realize that in the early church, they didn't have big auditoriums. This would be a big auditorium. You know, and they didn't have a big auditorium where they could all meet. So they met in various different houses to hear the apostolic preaching again of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, to fellowship together, and to also break bread together. And let me just say they did this enthusiastically. That's what the word devoted means. They looked and they cherished the time where they could remember the Lord, where they could break bread, where they could celebrate what we call today the Lord's table. Now let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, when you look at the characteristic activities of the church, and you were to name four activities of the church, you, you might come up with pre, uh, preaching. You might come up with fellowship. You might come up with prayer. But how many times would we come up with that fourth, which happens to be, again, the Lord's table? And remember, they did this enthusiastically. You know, and the reason why I bring that up, in many evangelical churches today, they don't even celebrate the table of the Lord. I mean, there's so, so, so much question. Who should take it and who should not? And let me just say, this, this is a believer's meal. This is for those who belong to the household of faith, who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's so much discussion about that. There's so much discussion as far as the nature of the element that it's easier many times to set this aside and say, say as a church, we're just not going to practice it. You, you know, for others, what they do is they just practice it in their home. They get their family again around, maybe even other close, uh, few close friends, and they get, get out the juice, they get out some bread, and they practice what is known as the Lord's table. But here's the amazing thing. As they came together as believers, as they congregated together as believers, they practiced what is known as the Lord's table. And they did it enthusiastically and joyously. And it really, again, brings up another qu- uh, a number of questions. And it's based upon this. Let me say this again. It's very clearly. There is no saving efficacy in the table of the Lord. And let me say that again. There's no saving efficacy. It's not that if I partake of the table of the Lord, somehow I'm infused, somehow, again, I'm more justified in God's sight, right? And the reason why is because I have perfect righteousness. And guess what? You cannot perfect perfect righteousness, can you? You know, if you add anything to it, you would actually actually take away from it. And so we have the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus. Even as we read this morning, when Jesus cried out those words, it is finished, everything that needed to be done was accomplished when he uh, expired on that cross of Calvary. He paid that debt of sin that, that I owed. So the question becomes, you know, why did this church, out of all the activities that they should have engaged in, why did they engage so enthusiastically with the table of the Lord if there's really nothing added to our salvation? And it really, again, even beckons more questions, even from our hearts. Do we look forward to the table of the Lord? You know, and even a greater question, why should we look forward to the table of the Lord? Many times called the Eucharist, many times called communion. Why should we look forward to that? And I think that's a great question. 
I think it's a question that many Christians struggle with. And I think it gets right at the center. In fact, it gets right at the center of why we are believers in Jesus Christ, why we are here this morning, why we congregate every single Sunday. And so when you understand the purpose, you start to, again, um, uh, have a heart, you know, for the Lord's table. And that's what I really want to create in you this morning. You know, we celebrate the table of the Lord at the beginning of the month every Sunday. And one of the things I love about Emmanuel Baptist Church is there's not a turnaway for the first Sunday. We have basically the same amount of people on, on the first Sunday as we do the second, third, and fourth. And praise God for that because many churches, when they celebrate the table of the Lord on the first Sunday or the second Sunday or whatever Sunday they celebrate it, many times the numbers go down. And the reason why is the service is a little longer, isn't it? You know, it's usually an extra 10, 15 minutes. You know, there's an extra sermonette that happens to be again in there. You know, and many people don't like it. And what I, what I really want to foster in you is an excitement, is a joy to come together and celebrate the table of the Lord and show the significance. So let's ask the question, why should I look forward to the table of the Lord? And I'm going to give you three reasons this morning. And I hope, again, it'll inspire you to really joyously look forward to the table of the Lord. And the first one is, the first reason why we should look forward to the table of the Lord and come to the table of the Lord is just out of obedience, right? We realize that this is a command that's given uh, by Jesus Christ. Just like he commanded us to come under the teaching of God's word. Just as he commanded us to fellowship with one another. Just as he commanded us to pray to, uh, to him that happens to be in heaven. He has commanded us, again, as far as the Lord's table. And this is one of the amazing things because, you know, we look at natural man, and natural man wants to create God out of his own image, right? Who is God? Well, I think God is like this, and we form God out of our own imagination. You know, and I think it's the same way for believers as far as worship. We want to decide how God wants to be worshipped. We want to decide the elements of worship, how we honor God, how we worship God, how we praise God. You know, and I think a lot of times when we come out, we think you know, uh, the leadership have chosen, you know, various different elements that happen to be in the worship service of how to worship God. You know, this is what Baptists always do. They always read scripture. They always pray. They always sing. And they always have a preaching of God's word. That's just traditionally what they've done. But here's what you have to realize. The subject of worship, God did not leave up to us. But everything that we do on a Sunday morning, everything that you engage in on a Sunday morning, has been commanded explicitly or implicitly by the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in his word, he has not left that subject of worship. So it's not like, you know, we need to change things up a, up a bit. Let's have a skit. You know why we never have skits? Any, anyone, anyone know? Because the Lord hasn't commanded us to worship that way. You know why we don't have movies that happen to begin up here? The reason why we don't have movies, again, on a Sunday morning, you guess what? The Lord hasn't commanded. He has not left that important distinction of how he is to be worshipped. So he's commanded us to do all these various different elements. And one of the commands that he gives us and how he's going to be honored, how he's going to be glorified, is through the Lord's table. And we tr traditionally read that passage of Scripture that's taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and beginning of verse number 23. And let me just read a few verses from the, that passage. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this and remember to me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this 
as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the, the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And notice in the text, he says tw- twice this, do this, right? And do this is a command, isn't it? It's telling us to do something, isn't it? You know, and, and, and I have to say this as clear as possible. Paul didn't come up with this. Paul didn't say, you know, what are, what, what are some ways I can get people to focus on God? You know, but he says in that passage of Scripture this, for I receive from the Lord what I deliver to you. In other words, this is by direct revelation. This hasn't been passed down for various different leaders. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, came to save knowledge of Christ. Here he is, Paul, and he's being taught these truths, and he's just passing them down. No, this came from direct revelation from Jesus Christ. So when you look at the Lord's table, it's not optional. It's command of Jesus Christ. Do this, do this, do this, right? It's not optional for us. And we realize that one of the hallmarks of early believers happen to be this. They love the Lord Jesus Christ, so they want to follow him. So when you look at the worship service, when you look at these four elements that happen to begin here in verse number 42, it is not the idea that, oh, how can we honor God? This is how God has commanded. This is how Christ has commanded his people when they come together to honor, to glorify, to praise him. You know, and we realize that if we truly love Christ, then we will follow him. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse number 15, if you love me, what are you going to do? You will keep my commandments. You know, and also listen to 1 John chapter 2. It says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in, in him, right? We have a heart that wants to follow Christ, that wants to obey Christ. Now, let me just say, some commands that happen to begin in the word of God are really difficult. They really are. They're really trying. You know, we, we feel, yeah, yeah, I ought to do this, but I can feel that compulsion not to do it, right? Let me just give you one example, forgiveness. I think one of the hardest things is to apply the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ when somebody does wrong against us. You know, and sometimes people can do horrendously, horrendously, again, evil and wicked things that happen to be, again, uh, against us. And the word of God, again, commands us to have a heart of forgiveness, right? To forgive them. And we don't want to forgive them. And we struggle and struggle and struggle. And then we remember Christ's great forgiveness. We remember, again, his glory. We remember, again, the extent and the weightiness of our, of our sins. But we really struggle with that. Now, why do I bring that up? I bring that up because when we come to the table of the Lord, the table of the Lord's not like that. The table of the Lord should be one of these commands that we enter into so enthusiastically, so joyously. It's not a tough command, is it? You know, do this, do this, do this is what he commands. He is master. He is Lord. He is our all. And so if we want to honor Christ as the people of God when we come together, well, what do we do? We remember him. We do this. We do this little ritual, this little tradition that has been passed down to us by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has commanded us to do. And if that was reason enough, let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, we should enter in on it enthusiastically. But there's more. You know, and the second reason why we should enthusiastically 
enter in and celebrate the table of the Lord is because of the truths that are displayed, our great hope that is displayed in a visual form. You know, and I love this because we live in a day and age where other things take precedence in our lives. I don't know what your life was like, but if you lived this in the fallen world, which you did, other things combated your soul. Other things took, you, took all of your thoughts, all of your aspirations, your mental energies, and they went in this direction, that direction, over here, over there, everywhere. And we can feel that. We can feel many times the suffering, the anguish of our soul take us in so many different directions. You know, and Jesus says, do this for a particular reason, right? He says, do this, and then we see these words, in remembrance of me, right? And the reason why is because we so often forget You know, and what we come back to when we come to the table of the Lord is a renewal. We recognize who he is, what he has done, our union with him, our union with other believers. You know, we're reminded of that. You know, we said revive us again. It's a renewal of this great joy that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, his sacrifice in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, when you understand the central truths of communion, of the Lord's table, I think that's a good way to measure any church. It really is. Does this church, in its singing, in its preaching, in everything that it does, in its reading, again, in all the activities that it does on a given Sunday morning, does it accentuate? Does it bring forth? You know, is it pre- are, are the truths that are offered in communion preeminent, again, in all of our preaching services and all of their worship services? I think it's a good way to m- measure a church. Because, again, every time we come into the church, it is a covenant renewal. It is a way to renew our great love and remember what Jesus Christ has done for us as unworthy sinners. And let me just give you three truths that are in every communion service, or that should be in every communion service. And one is, when we take that little wafer, that wafer is a visual representation of something, isn't it? That bread is a visual representation of something, isn't it? It is something we can see. It's something that we can touch. It's something that we can taste. And what is a visual representation of is none other than the body of Jesus. You know, and when we talk about the body of Jesus, we're talking about the humanity of Jesus. Jesus became fully human. At the same time, he's fully God. You know, and I'm always amazed at that. In fact, you know, I was meditating on this passage really early this morning, and I was thinking through that. You know, Jesus is eternally the Son of God, isn't he? Eternally. You go back to eternity past, before there was a creation, he was eternally the Son of God. But think of who he is now and eternally now. He will never throw off his humanity. Have you ever thought about that? When he donned humanity, when he joined humanity, where he is perfectly human and perfectly God forevermore, he will be perfectly human forevermore. I mean, it's, a, it's an absolute amazing truth. And one of the things I love about the gospel is I think nobody can come up with a gospel message on their own. I, I think there's so much wisdom, so much glory that happened to begin there. Nobody could uh, say, hmm, you know, this, this would be a real good, 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 uh, good news message. In fact, I think if anybody ever came up with that message on their own, that it would seem blasphemous. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? 
Have you ever thought about an angel in heaven, you know, and here they are querying the whole problem of human sin, and they come to God the Father, and they say something like this. You know what I think you should do? Yeah, 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 I know the Son is being lauded. I know he's being praised. I know he's worthy of all worship. But you should send him in the utter humiliation of being made in human flesh, that he might live that life, that he might rub shoulders with all those unclean people who deserve your judgment, and then he should die the most horrendous death. I think any angel that would say that, you know, all of heaven would think that would be utter blasphemy. But here's an amazing thing. In the Chronicles, in the ordination of the Godhead before time, before creation, ever was, there was a plan in how the Son would be magnified, how the Son would be glorified. And we celebrate that. Every time we come to the table of the Lord, that a body has been given. Not for Christ. Christ is perfect, but for you. For you. That he might live that life that none of us could live. You know, and when we look at that juice, it's a visual reminder, isn't it? We take it, we sip it. You know, the juice and wine reminds us that there was a violent death. You know, there was a sacrificial death that was made on our behalf. So when Jesus came, he just didn't come again to actively fulfill the will of God through his obedience, through fulfilling the law of God. But he came, again, we often talk about the act of obedience and passive obedience, but here Jesus Christ offers himself up. He lets himself be taken. He lets himself be hung on that cross. He gives himself publicly to be crucified on our behalf. And it speaks again of this substitutionary atonement, this substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we read about it in Galatians chapter 4. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, in other words, a specific time, this is what God did. God sent forth his son, right? And here's the incarnation, born of a woman, born under the law. But this is what he came to do, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive something that we could not receive without the death of Christ. And that is the adoption of sons. You know, Romans chapter 5, verse number 8 says, But God shows his love for us, and while we were yet sinners. And listen to what Christ did. Christ died. He has to have a body. has to have a humanity. has to be made like us, but absolutely unlike us, in that he is perfect and sinless. Christ died for who? For us. It's an amazing, um, it's, it's an amazing truth. And believers, I mean, think about it. They sing about the death of an innocent man. They rejoice about the death of an innocent man. And why? Because he gave his life. He gave his life as a perfect sacrifice for sin. So every time we come to the Lord, uh, to, to the table, we remember the perfect humanity. We remember a body that was given, a took on human flesh. Human flesh that could be crushed. Human flesh that could bleed. Human flesh that could die. And he died that substitutionary death. But there is a third truth that we celebrate. You know, and here's, a, here's an amazing thing. Have you ever thought that when we celebrate the table of the Lord, we're looking forward? Have you ever thought about that? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, there is a t- coming a time, and every time we celebrate the table of the Lord, that could be the last time. Have, have you ever thought about that? And I'm not talking about death taking you, death taking me. That's a real possibility. But what the table of the Lord does is not only look back at the perfect redemption that he gives us, but our great hope. You know, and we read in 1 Corinthians um, uh, 
Chapter 11, verse number 26, these words, for as, for as, for, I'm sorry, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, right? The Lord's death. That's what we're proclaiming, the Lord's death. He died for us. But there's coming a time where we won't. And it says, until he comes. There's a termination date. And how can there be a termination death at date? Because he's coming back. He rose from the grave. You know, and I love the table of the Lord because I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But these are visual signs of things that I don't see. Have you ever think, thought about that? I don't see the body of uh, Jesus. You know, I come by faith and I see the body of Jesus in these elements, in what they represent. This perfect humanity. When I look at the Jews, I realize beyond a shadow of a doubt, the bloody sacrifice. It's a representation, again, of what Jesus did. It's a visual reminder that here it is, by faith, I have in this great Christ. But it's lived by faith. I see by faith. But when will it be all over? And And it'll be all over when my faith becomes sight. You know, uh, we read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. Next week, we'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, of course. And listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 13 says. It says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But here it is. But the greatest of these is love. Here's the three great Christian virtues. Faith, hope, and love. And and here's what Paul says, the greatest of these is love. Now, here's the question. Why is the greatest love? Why is the greatest love? And the reason why the greatest is love is faith and hope will come to an end. But love continues on. And when does it continue on? When I no longer walk by faith, but I walk by sight. When I am in Jesus' presence, and think of how great that is. Because every time we come to the table of the Lord, well, well what do we remember? A body was given. You know, a humanity came and lived that life that I could never uh, live. He came again, and there was a sacrifice. There was one that was so worthy, one that was so perfect, he could offer his life that I might have this wonderful forgiveness of sins. And it directs me to this great hope that one day I will no longer be walking by faith but walking by sight, I will be like him because I will see him as he is. Why wouldn't we want to celebrate the table of the Lord? Why wouldn't we come enthusiastically, again, realizing these great truths? I mean, I mean, that's, I was thinking about this as we were reading scripture this morning and we we're singing these hymns, how often we are singing about the very truths that we celebrate in remembrance, in remembrance, in remembrance, in remembrance, in remembrance, in remembrance, right? Um, well, one of those uh, songs uh, happens to be on Christ's solid rock I stand. And think about this, because this is what we sing about. <laughs> Listen to what it says, my hope, right? That's what I'm living by right now. But it says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. Otherwise, I dare not trust in anything that I do, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And listen to the last stanza, because those are taking in his incarnation, his substitutionary atonement. But then he says, when he shall come with trumpet sound, 
Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless. And think about it. I'm going to stand and I'm going to see Jesus. Faultless to stand before the throne. So what do we sing enthusiastically? We sing this. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. And then we sing this. We sing this. All other ground. All other ground is what? Sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And I don't know how as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that when you can understand this is not just some dead ritual that we go through, but the significance of these truths, how you can't come enthusiastically and say, yes, 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 this is my faith. This is my hope. This is my Christ. You don't want to recognize these great truths. So, we recognize as we come to the table of the Lord, we do this enthusiastically. We do it joyfully, not trying to conjure up emotions that happen to begin inside us, but because of the significance. Christ commanded this. We realize the glory of this great hope that we have in Jesus Christ, what these elements, again, stand for, visually stand for as far as our faith. But there's a third truth of why we celebrate the table of the Lord and why we should so enthusiastically celebrate the table of the Lord And it's this, because it creates unity in the people of God. Isn't it true? You know, they did this together. They did this corporately, didn't they? And it creates a unity in the people of God. You know, because when we're reminded, and we should be reminded, you know, in the songs that we sing and the scripture that we read and the preaching, again, of God's word, we should be reminded of these truths over and over. And at the table, we should be reminded that my salvation is based upon another. And here's the whole point. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is so exhilarating of what Christ has done for us, but it's absolutely so humbling. Isn't it true? It humbles the heart. You know, it brings us low that God had to come in human flesh to live that perfect life that I could never uh, live. And he had to die that substitutionary death. That was my only hope. Right? It's there's nothing found in me. There's nothing good in me. And think what pride does. Pride is always saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. And it always creates division. It always creates, again, uh, discord among a whole bunch of proud people, again, pointing to themselves. But what what do we do? We recognize our only hope is found in Jesus Christ. Right? We joyously... From the depths of our heart, we yearn and cry out of what he has done. At the same time, celebrate that. You know, it's like Isaac Watts. Some of these old homes are just, uh, hymns are just amazing because of the truths that they do. And when I survey the wondrous cross, think about that because I'm contemplating the wondrous cross of Christ. Now, what, what is it? What does it do in me? It says this, on which the Prince of Glory died. Here's what it does. My riches gain. In other words, the thing, the accolades, uh, my own righteousness, the things that I have done right, the things I take pride in, my riches gain, I count. But loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my Lord, all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to his blood. And as we come to the table of the Lord, as we come again every Sunday, even to all of our services, this is what we're saying. We're saying, look at him. Prize him. Cherish him. Trust in him. 
Right? It's all about him. The reason why I can stand in the presence of an all-glorious, all-holy, all-consuming God is not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. You know, and that's the amazing thing. When you look at a world that has been around us, it's amazing how much a discord. You know, uh, I stopped uh, listening to the news um, two or three years ago. I have not listened to a news class. Now, it doesn't mean I'm ignorant about what's going on in the world. You know, I have a uh, few little, uh, what do you call them, apps. You know, and you hit them and it gives a news story. And I look at the uh, um, headlines. And I usually look at the headlines and I say this, nope, nothing to read today. You know, uh, but it's incredible, again, when you read headline after headline after headline after headline, how much discord, how much division there happens to be again in the world. Uh, and we realize that, again, even in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there can be division. You know, the thing that's surprising about the world is they actually are looking forward all the time. They're looking forward. We can create, look at how great we are. We can create, we can create unity. We can really do this. We can end wars. We can end division. We can end relationship discord. We can do this. And they're always looking forward, always looking forward. But when you look at the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, how do we create unity? It's never by looking forward. You know how it is? It's looking back. Look at what he did. Look at what had to be done for us. Look at the Christ who came. Look at his perfect life. Look at how uh, the absolute worthiness of the one who came. And this was the only way, the weightiness of Jesus in human flesh. That was the only way. And every time we celebrate the table of the Lord, there's a reminder of this truth that humbles the heart. There's a covenant renewal, again, of this great hope, this great faith in this great Savior. You know, I love what Bobby Jameson writes about this. He says, the Lord's Supper is a sign and a seal of a new covenant, right? On God's part, right? And in that, it visibly extends and confirms confirms for us his saving promises to us. But listen to what he says next, because, again, we recognize what God has done. It says, but the Lord's Supper is also a sign and seal of the covenant on our part. By taking the elements, we solemnly signify our faith in Christ and commitment to him, confirming our union with Christ and with one another. Isn't it true? We come back to him. You know, we signify that my only hope is to be joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. But when I am joined to the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm on the same plane with everyone else. Everyone else has this need of forgiveness. And I'm joined. I'm in with union with everyone else. So think about it, because this is what we say very enthusiastically as the people of God. You know, we come together, and when we look at the body, we don't say, a body has been given for me. We don't say that. We say a body has been given for us, right? These are God's people. We don't say the blood was spilt for me. That's not Christianity. Here's Christianity. The blood was spilt. This is why it's a a community. This is why it is a family meal. The blood was spilt for us. And it marks out the people of God. We say these are the people of God. These are Christ and these are mine. Right? And that's the only way. You know, um, uh, we read this a couple of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 17, but it says this, but there is one bread, right? How, how many loaves is there? There's one bread. 
We who are many, and we can see this this morning, where many people are what? One body. There's the unity. And why are we united together? And here's why. For we all partake of what? How many, how many loaves? One. One bread. One way of salvation. Right? There is one God. It's not that you're on your path to righteousness, I'm on my path to righteousness, I'm on my path to righteousness, I'm on the way to God, I'm on the way to God. No, there's only one way. You know, in uh, Peter, again, preaches in Acts chapter 4 and verse number 12, and there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only one name, Jesus Christ. And here's an amazing thing, as we recognize the glory and the significance of salvation, it binds our hearts together. You know, and this was the problem in Corinth. The problem in Corinth is they were practicing the Lord's table in a very ritualistic way that was empty of all of its meaning. You know, and, and that's why Paul gave 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 23. If you read the verses before it, he's giving it for a particular reason. And he says in, uh, in verse number 17 of that chapter, he says this, but the, in the following instructions, otherwise I'm going to give you an instruction about the table of the Lord, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Now, here's the question. Think about it. Why was it for the worse? I mean, they're meeting together. They're having a preaching service. You know, they're breaking bread they are going through, and no doubt, again, this symbolizes this, this symbolizes this, remember me, remembers me. Why was it not for the good? And he tells us. You know, he tells us, again, in verse number 18, the next verse, he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. You know, isn't it amazing? They had what was known... As a love feast. And a love feast, again, would be something like we are doing after this service. But they had it again in such a way that uh, some of the wealthy members of that congregation would bring huge meals. And they would invite, again, a few, uh, few, few of the members that were present, again, to join them in this meal. And the others that happened to be there, the poorer uh, members of that congregation, uh, left hungry. You know, and it created a division created a vision that there were some who were in the have and there was have-nots that happened to be in the congregation. So much so that Paul says this, and remember, they're going through the ritual. You know, and Paul says this in verse number 20. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And why would he say that if they're going through the ritual? It's not enough to go in the ritual. If you're denying the whole purpose of what Christ has done for us and who we are, uh, you're not doing the Lord's Supper. And why? Because the church, the, the Lord's table tells us there's not haves and have-nots. There's only, here it is, have-nots. That's all there is. All of us are desperately needy. All of us need what Jesus and only him can provide. All of us need his forgiveness. All of us need his sacrifice. And we announce that together as the people of God, that he is ours by simple faith. And so it's a proclamation, isn't it? 
So what God does, again, is give this covenant renewal that we're the people of God and he brings our hearts, he brings everything together. If we have any discord, if we have anything against our brother, if we have these thoughts starting to conjure up, conjure up if there's forgiveness and it's needed, we're reminded of this great faith of Jesus Christ. That there's no haves and have-nots. We stop that hypocritical judgment and we're joined together as a people of God. Now think about it. Why would you not want to enthusiastically celebrate the table of the Lord? In fact, when you look at these three, again, elements, the command of Christ, when you look again at the truths of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the unity, this is what happens every single Sunday. But these are visual demonstrations of what Jesus Christ has done. Now, I'm going to end with Martin Lloyd-Jones, because guess why? I love Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he can say things way better than I can say. So uh, sometimes I think I should, I should read all of his sermons, you know, just every, every single Sunday. Uh, but anyways, uh, I love to preach, so, so praise the Lord. But uh, here's, here's what he writes, and this is how he applies this passage of Scripture and these truths to our life. He says, and those who really believe will go on proclaiming this reminding themselves of this, thanking God for it. You will not have to persuade them to come to the communion table. You will not have to make them come. You will not be able to keep them away. Above all, they will want to offer themselves and all they are and have as a thank offering to him who gave himself for them. And then he asks these questions. So do you come to the breaking of bread? Uh, I'm sorry, do you come to the breaking of bread as the first Christians came? Do you delight in coming? Does it move you? Does it thrill you? Do you find it the most wonderful thing? And then he comes to this conclusion. If so, you are Christian as they were. If not, have you a right to call yourself a Christian at all? This is what Christians have always done. They, have, they do not come mechanically. They do not think it is a miracle worked by a priest. Such thoughts have been added on its ongoing significance. Here it is, starkly, stark simplicity. This wonderful good news that God's own son, taken on our sins upon himself, has paid the penalty and has endured even unto death. And that his body was broken and his blood was shed. And when we believe, the one thing that we want to do is to praise and thank him and to tell everyone about him. Praise God for his goodness. Praise God for the truth and the proclamation of his gospel every time we come together. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Father, what an amazing text. What an amazing truth. Lord, as we look at the table of the Lord, so often we look at it as an unnecessary addition to our worship service. But Lord, when we look at Scripture, Scripture gives us a depth. It gives us a weightiness of why we do what we do. And we realize as we worship the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, that you have told us, you've commanded us to worship, to laud, to celebrate you in a specific way. And one of those elements, one of those aspects, important aspects, 
is the table, Lord, which we call the communion table, the fellowship table, the family table. And God, we thank you for that. We thank you for the command to come back time and time and time and time again to remember our Lord, to remember our Lord, to remember our Lord. We thank you for this command. And we thank you for the centralities of the truth, of the perfect humanity, the perfect substitute. Lord, his shed blood. Lord, and even looking forward that there's a day where we will not celebrate the table of the Lord because we will no longer need these visual reminders of what was done for us, but we will see Christ face to face. And God, to think that it creates such a unity, such a unity of celebration where we're not looking and lauding one another, but we're looking and even saying to one another, look at him, look at this Christ, look at his glory. We thank you so much, Lord. Just be with us now. We ask these things in Jesus' name.